from the heart of Dubai, where tomorrow is being built today to the world. Welcome to the CTO Show with Mehmet. Here, we redefine technology and reimagine possibilities. With Mehmet, delve into the riveting realms of AI, cybersecurity, and digital technology. Experience the thrilling highs and lows of startups. Immerse yourself in the spirit of entrepreneurship and witness the future of business innovation being written in real time. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and explore the future. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the CTO Show with Mehmet. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me Kiron. Kiron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. The way I love to do it is I keep it to my guests to introduce themselves. So the floor is yours. My pleasure, Mehmet. Really, really my pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yes, yeah, so quick background to me, being involved in a number of technology businesses. Um, I was actually thinking early today, it's last century when I started, which makes me feel incredibly old. Um, <laughs> yes, first one back in 1998 uh, was a web development business when I think being probably the rest of the world, we're trying to hand at doing some web development. So that's how I got kicked off. Um, and since then, been through a variety of different technology businesses from, from web development through to domain name registration, online company formations, telecoms, and most recently, payments. So that's a bit of background to me. That's great. And thank you again for being on the show here today, Kieran. Now, you know, Actually, when I was preparing, there's a lot of things that uh, we can talk about today, but let's uh, start from uh, the concept of open banking, right? So it's something on the rise, you know, and this is, maybe I will leave it to you to explain to us more, but it's one branch of, you know, what's called now FinTech, right? Exactly, so exactly. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the open banking. Absolutely. Again, I'll, I'll kind of start with a bit of a, a story if it, if it helps. But um, sure. we, we got into open banking via a really circuitous route. So back in 2016, I was running a telecoms business, um, IP telephony, providing services to all sorts of organizations from call centers through to small, small businesses. <clears throat> and one of the things that um, I also like to do in my spare time, I will get to a point with this, honestly, but it will seem like a long journey to that point. But in my spare time, I, uh, I enjoyed doing um, running and, and had done some running for charity over the years. Um, 2016, I was doing the New York Marathon, decided to raise some money for a charity called Mind in the UK. And rather than some of that money that was being donated leaking from that donation flow from my supporters through to the charity, I was keen to see if we could find a way of doing that where all the money reached the charity. Mm -hmm. So it was project at the time we set up an online giving platform and it was developed by the uh, all of the engineers in the business and myself and we said right we're not going to take a penny out of this flow we'll figure a way of covering the costs and actually the principal cost of operating that platform by far and away was the cost of processing the donations which were all made via debit and credit card so the, the platform emerged and we started running it and we said, well, we'll commit to the first million pounds that goes through the platform in terms of meeting those costs. Um, and in the background, we'll start to look for a corporate sponsor to pick them up as we grow. And we found a corporate sponsor in the cooperative bank in the UK. It was a good ethical fit because that kind of 
met with their particular requirements and customer base. So they got on board and supported us. And essentially, um, there was a moment when that platform really, really started to take off. And we were going back to the cooperative bank and saying, we just need more money to pay car processing. So we were doing no development of the platform, <clears throat> no uh, marketing. It was just kind of every single penny was going to meet those costs. And we thought we've got to find a solution to this because this me means we've got this really kind of low impact on our ceiling and reach that we'd like to remove. And that's where open banking came along. I did tell you, I get to the point in the end. So open banking really opened our eyes in many ways to, is there an alternative to, to cards which were introduced what, six decades ago um, for a very different world? And open banking seemed to fit the bill. We could suddenly move money from the donor's account to the charities, A, in real time, so pretty near instant transactions, um, using a third-party open banking provider in the first instance, it was 95% cheaper than cards. Really simple process, um, fast uh, and very secure. So that, that's how we got started with open banking through that kind of necessity, really. It was, it was born out of necessity. We had to solve a problem and open banking came to the rescue. Cool. And of course, like uh, I love when I hear you know, the, the story behind starting something because always what I tell, um, you know, we tell, I would, I would say with my guests on the show that especially if you're an entrepreneur, you need to find the problem and you need to find the problem that is big enough. And then you need to find the solution that make it relevant to be used. So it's, it's a spot on. Now, if, if we want like to dig a little bit more into the open uh, banking part now, of course, you know, the whole fintech, you know, it, it made a revolution actually in, in, in the way we do payments, in the way we, we, we buy things, in the way we... So at some stage, you know, the banks, you know, traditional banks, they said, hey, hold on one second, we're losing customers. We need to do something about it. So how are you seeing, you know, traditional banking in general trying to catch up with something like, you know, open banking and trying to, 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 to offer the same, I would say, services from their side to, to the public? I think that's a very good question. I think what's been really key in the UK and other countries is the open banking implementation entity now, Open Banking Limited, as it's moved on beyond that implementation stage. But, but that really was the catalyst for the growth because um, what the OBIE had um, or the way it developed was that there were a, a CMA nine first banks were essentially mandated to open up their APIs to allow fintechs like ours to access the kind of information we need to do to be able to, to, to process payments or do other things like account information services. So I think that mandate really helped galvanize things and, and, and give us a, a, a way to accelerate that because the banks essentially have no option other than to do it. And that got the fintech community moving and innovating as fintechs always will. Uh, and I think that's imperative moving forward that there's some kind of, you know, uh, authority in the middle of this saying that this needs to happen in the interest of, of uh, um, competition or whether it's improved efficiencies in terms of moving money around or whatever it might be. I think that's been really, really critical. Um, and the banks are certainly, you know, a lot of the banks are, are really involved in leading this and, and, and sitting in the groups and, uh, and in technology forums and whatever else to, to, to help this technology work. Cool. Now, 
a question also out of curiosity, like how how difficult it was, you know, from from regulations perspective, because you know when it comes to this to this kind of, of uh, sectors, especially like something like fintech, you have regulations in health tech, you have regulations. So, what were the challenges? I would ask you, like, and how did you overcome that? It's it's another excellent question. I mean, a lot of people see there's a almost a tension between regulation and innovation. Um, Oddly, I come at, come at that the other way around and see the regulations presenting the opportunity because in some ways it creates the barriers to entry for, for organizations that are probably not quite so rigorous. So the authorization process was was very involved and, and we came out of it feeling like, you know, we'd been through a proper authorization. There was no, there was no quick wins or quick easy rides through that process. It took the best part of a year from start to finish. And I think I'll be very honest, when we finished that, I felt like, A, we'd really achieved something, but I felt that we were perfectly equipped to go and do what we needed to do. And that's what good regulation is about. It's about providing the confidence in the users to have the confidence in the organizations that are effectively handling money. I mean, what what gets much more important than that? There's, there are very few things, potentially health and so on, but it's a significant um responsibility that we have in handling people's money and, and, I, and I think the authorization process is key. So yeah, um, it, it wasn't easy, but uh, I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> nice. I love this. Now, another aspect is, and you've done this during, you know, over, over the years during your career, uh, Kieran, and which also I know you love to talk about it, but let's, let's focus about, you know, th this, this uh, venture, when you start something new, you know, you have an ambition to, to scale it, right? And you are in, in kind of, again, because you are regulated, uh, it's something quietly new, right? So how did you manage to have, you know, a, a growth plan and succeed in executing this growth plan for uh, this business? This business um, is in the very early stages. So the growth that we've seen and the scaling has been in other businesses, but we plan to adopt exactly the same kind of approach as, as, as we've, we've done previously in, in a lot of technology businesses. Um, in terms of where we are currently, and, and again, it's, it's kind of quite interesting, but it, it gives us a real, a genuine proof of concept because if you think about how, how I explained how we started in that online charity giving platform, I don't think anyone necessarily, and the charities will probably be the first to say this, associates the third sector with kind of, you know, payments innovation or any kind of really strong innovation. Um, potentially, you know, they're, they're more followers than leaders, largely because they're very, very um, time poor and don't have the bandwidth to be doing the kinds of things that commercial organizations often do. So for us, it was, uh, it, it was a necessary step. It was enforced in order to keep the platform alive, but it's proved to be a really, really useful one in understanding, you know, A, what the requirements of the, mar the market are, um, what that consumer journey will look like as opposed to a donor's journey. I mean, they're very similar in many ways, but I guess you're, you know, you're going into that sector and thinking, I'm going to do something fairly radical with payments. I'm going to present people with a brand new way of making a payment, which involves in them in giving consent to us, largely an unknown operation, a brand new fintech that's been approved, giving consent for us to 
essentially move money from their account into another account. So as I say, you wouldn't necessarily target charities as being your first market for that to do your beta testing with. So it's been fantastic because our view is that if we can get good adoption, good traction within that charity sector, then that bodes extremely well for moving this into the commercial space. So we're just doing that. We've literally just launched commercial products very, very recently. We have a thousand charities on the platform using it and processing donations all day long, every day. So we've got loads of real world experience out there, um, but we never charge the charities. We never will charge the charities. So we're now at that point of seeing what the market will bear in terms of the cost of this service. So if I want to compare the skill on to the concept of uh, crowd raising or crowdfunding, so how, how, how do I compare that? What in terms of what we do in the, in the charity space, to me, Mamet. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we, we operate a platform. We're not in crowdfunding at all. We only serve registered UK charities. And, and for us, that was a conscious decision in the early days because we felt the diligence required to onboard those charities would be easier for us to manage because they have to be registered with the charity commissions and so on. They publish accounts. Um, rather than doing diligence on individual kind of crowdfunding, which we felt might be slightly more challenging, particularly at the time when we launched with the telecoms team. So, so that was this, this, the strategic reason to go into the charity space, and that's where we've continued to operate. So that's the key difference, I would say, in terms of the onboarding and the work that we've got to do around that. We have access to lots of information, indeed, through APIs now, so we can do a lot of those checks on during onboarding a charity just automatically through API. That's cool, great. And uh, when it comes to, you know, in, in, in general, like, I mean, when it comes to, to this space, the open banking space, um, what are like, because you're focusing on charities currently, mm -hmm. you, you're planning to, to, to take it also maybe to, to some commercial entities later, but what are the possibilities I would ask? Like payment, like instant payment, lower, uh, you know, uh, commissions is the direct benefit, but what else, you know, we, we, we can take this further. I mean, those, those are the key, the key things. Bear in mind, we, we have launched now, we are actually operating in that commercial space, but it's, it's about, I think the, the, the four key drivers are simplicity, um, speed, um, the security, enhanced security, and, and above all for the, the, the commercial space is the cost saving. So to give you some example, if you look at the typical cost of processing a card payment, and these will vary, you, you know, bearing, bearing in mind volumes and so on, and, and, and the particular deals that, that merchants are cutting with their suppliers, but probably somewhere in the 1% to 2.5% range for transaction plus, again, in the UK, probably somewhere in the range of 10 to 20p and more. So headline rates, if you look at some of the card providers, can be more than that, 1.4%, 20p is typical. Where we're at in the commercial space is no percentage. So literally, um, we take nothing as a percentage of the payment and for each transaction, we charge 1p. Um, so, so it, it, you know, it's incredibly aggressive. We, we describe them as market crushing fees. That's going to be the driver for retail adoption without a doubt. But if you add to that, the fact that I can be through checkout with less friction uh, we're no longer en entering 16-digit card numbers, CVVs, um, expiry dates of cards, cardholder names, potentially zip codes. All of that information is not required at all. This is simply tap, 
authorize that payment in your mobile banking or your online banking account and you're done. And again, I think the what we've seen in the in the UK and, and beyond through strong customer authentication is ironically, if you go through all that process of entering all the card details, you may well end up in your mobile bank authorizing the payment that you've just made on a debit card anyway. And so we're removing a lot of friction at checkout and getting people through checkout much, much faster. The speed also relates to settlement time. So again, typically, if you're waiting for settlement from a car provider, that's on average between one and three days, can even be longer. And we've seen some horror stories in the charity sector where, you know, charities are waiting 30 days and beyond to get the money. And if that's an urgent charity appeal, they need the money in the account straight away to, to operate. So the settlement times are really, really important too. In terms of security, you're not sharing card details. You're not sharing any personal financial information. Therefore, there's nothing that can be breached or lost. So again, a huge advantage over other cards. And imagine now with contactless, if, if, you know, if I steal a card, I can wander around London and do quite a lot of damage with contactless payments in 30 minutes. And, and okay, I've, I've got recourse through my bank to claim those back. But just as a hassle factor of having to go through that pain point, um, it's not a great, great scenario. So again, with an open banking transaction, if you're using a, an open banking payments app, for example, then a lot of those will be based on my biometrics data in order to authorize that payment. So face ID, whatever it might be. So I'd say those are the real key benefits and the key drivers for retail adoption. Yeah. And I know for a fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kieran, because you know, when, when you, when you rely on these systems, um, you get the, because of the, exactly what you mentioned at the end, the authentication and, uh, you know, the KYC and the other stuff. So all the anti-money laundering or the, you know, these things that actually delays the traditional payment approach, I think you, you get them sorted out, right? Yeah. So, so one of the things that you won't see um, in an open banking payment flow is something that you often see, um, it's called confirmation of payee if you're making a payment. And say you were making a bank transfer, you enter the details, and I've broadly got your name right as it appears on your account, but it might not be quite right. Um, and you get a you know a confirmation challenge question from the bank to say, you know, it's a close match. Do you want to check the details again and re-enter them? Um, did you mean this? Because we've already verified that recipient and onboarded them to our system, then you will never get that challenge question because you don't need to be asked the question. The money, we know exactly where it's going. It's going into that bank account. So because you're not entering any data whatsoever, essentially all you're doing is giving us basically a token, an approval token to say, I want to pay £25 from my account um, to whoever it might be, uh, Amnesty International. Um, here's an authority for you to take £25 out of my account, pay into Amnesty International. We know Amnesty International's account because they're registered with us and they're on our platform and, and we just make that payment. Cool. You know, like anything that makes the user journey easier, it's more appealing all the time. Um, so you're right. I mean, it's very time poor, aren't they these days? So, you know, the, anything that's allowing you to go through, but go through quickly and with confidence, I think is really, really key. Yeah. hundred percent. So this is, you know, these types of solutions that, you know, personally I love because, you know, whenever you can remove friction, reduce time to do things and, uh, remove the hassle, I would say, because you just, you mentioned something which happened to a lot of people I know, like they get, uh, 
for rightly or another scam, and you know their their debit card or credit card gets used, and then they need to call the bank, and that the bank. I'm not sure how much it takes in the UK, but for example, here in 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 Dubai, to reclaim the money, sometimes it can take up to 90 days, yep. sometimes 180 days. Like it depends. If it happened inside the country, it's it's good because less time probably. But if something happened while you're traveling, for example, and you used your card and someone used your card, scammed you basically. So it can take six months until you can get your money back. And you know, all the frustration, calling the bank, sending emails and all this. So yeah, like it's, it's a lot of things. Now, maybe it's a kind of generic question, I know, but because now you're inside uh, uh, this, uh, this uh, business um, here on other trends that you are seeing in, in fintech, you know, like what are the hottest trends you see now? From I think that's we're quite focused on the on the payment side of fintech. The, the opportunities we have because we we've got both missions from the FCA. So we have the AIS, the account information service provision that would allow us to do things. Um, to give you an example in the charity space, uh, to, to give you an example of account information services, how we might use them. If you're making a donation through a charity platform, a lot of the things you'll see, or what you'll see very often is, um, oh, you're about to pay £10. Would you like to pay £10, £25 or £50? And there are three options presented and you choose one of them. Um, and people will just go for the middle one. Um, and the charities will understand this. They'll have done lots of research on what's the appropriate level of donation in their sector. So again, when we look at the charities on our platform, those 10, 25, and 50 might vary considerably from one charity sector to another. However, they're still, we would describe that almost as a monologue from the charities. It's based on their research, but it's not really got a great deal of input from you as the donor. You're presented with three numbers. Yes, you can enter another amount. What we could do with account information services using our consents from the FCA, or sorry, our permissions from the FCA and our consents from you as the donor, is to actually say, what's the affordability level here? What, you know, what's an appropriate amount for you to give rather than what's an appropriate amount for the charity to receive? So you know, we're, we're quite focused now on having done a lot of the payment initiation services to start to explore that and how we make more of a dialogue between the charities and its supporters rather than that being a, you know, a, a one direction um, conversation. So I think AIS, particularly in our, in our spaces and speaking as, as our business, that's an area that we want to start looking at in much more detail going forward. Um, in terms of the payment side, I think there's a, a lot of interest now about variable recurring payments. So that's essentially a, your direct debit equivalent for want of a simple explanation in the open banking space. So I can take a, a varying amount from your account, again, with the consent of the, of the person making the payment. And you can see how that would work and reduce costs in areas like utilities bills, where I might pay once a month or once a quarter, but the amount might vary each time. So again, what we're doing there is reducing the settlement time to instant um, and, and reducing the cost significantly on processing those payments. I would say certainly in the areas that I'm most familiar with, they would be the, the kind of hottest areas. But what we've seen generally in this whole space is a move from you know, open banking into open finance um, and then into open data. So you're starting to look at broader and broader areas of where this um, data sharing and information sharing with consents can be put to really great use. 
cool yeah like uh, a lot of innovation still uh, you know on, on the rise i would say absolutely absolutely yeah. But but you know what you just mentioned now is 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 also fantastic because again back to 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 the thing we were just discussing removing the friction right so uh, like if I have something that on my behalf can go and pay my bills decide the amount and I don't have to do it you know it's it's fantastic because you don't even need to get some reminders about that you don't need to be distracted actually to to get the reminder about that so this is also something very cool. Now, and I think, sorry, yeah, just to, to just to go in there, one other thing I think that's really important is those you can even still get the notifications, but they can be much more informative to you. So exactly. it can be an informed notification. An example might be, uh, you know, I might want to not, not want to set up a regular donation to a charity, but I might want to be prompted that, do you want to make a donation again? By the way, you gave them £25 last month. This month, it might be more appropriate to give 15 or it might be more appropriate to give 50 so again, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's the enhancement of, of things like that where we can make things much more relevant to the recipient of notification that become really, really exciting. Yeah, cool. Now, shifting a little bit gears, Kieran, um, when I was, you know, one of the reasons why also I get excited to talk to you today, when I was reading the bio, you mentioned that you have started, scaled, and exited nine businesses. This is yep. a, a record, I would say. So you yeah. must... So by now you must have, as they say, you have now, I, I mean, maybe the, the success formula for doing this over and over again, but this didn't come in one day. This didn't come in one year also. Like it took you quite a long time to reach here. What I'm interested on here on in the first place, like what attracted you actually to, to do this whole startup thing? Uh... Oh, good question. I'm going to have to think back to that last century again. But um, I start, <laughs> funny enough, no, 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 it's all, it's all good. Funny, I've started out in the, in, in the Middle East. I was working, I'd started life as a, my professional life, actually. Second job was teaching, teaching business studies and economics in a high school. Um, and I fancied a move and ended up in Oman, um, running a training institute for vocational training out in Oman back in 98. So this is how the journey started. Um, and I really love doing kind of creative stuff. So I was also tasked with producing some of the marketing material for the training institute. And they'd asked me to put together a PDF document. And I thought, well, that's, that's all very well and good, but it's 1998. Should we not be thinking about the internet? Um, so I think that was my first ever kind of thought about, can we do something online? Um, finished working with the training institute, went back to the UK, and that's when we started the web development business. So it was again, it was kind of initially born out of necessity. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I, I knew I didn't want to teach anymore. I kind of done that for four or five years and was ready for a move. Um, and then since then, I think there's been always a passion for stuff in the IT sector, for sure. Um, I've never sold anything that isn't, I always describe it as a zero or a one. So for me, it is all about data. It's all about things that can be done online. It's never for me, and this is a personal preference, about physical product, about storing things, warehousing things, shipping things. It's I want to be able to get a solution that I can have delivered now and there's no product to ship. So I think that's been key in a, in a lot of the areas that, that I've looked at moving into. Um, I think the other one, that's been really, really important in terms of how we've made this work is, is really starting with, again, you, you talked about this earlier on, what's the problem we need to solve? 
And how do we do that? How do we make ourselves visible? And then how do we make that experience for the customer as friction-free as we possibly can? Um, so again, turning back the clock many years, there was a lot, large focus in the early days of anything web-based for us on SEO because it was a, a really cheap, cost-effective way of getting yourself out there. Much, much harder these days. I'm, I'm fully aware of that because there's a lot, a lot more content for one and a lot more uh, competition for eyes on, on websites. But, but certainly in the early days, SEO and then making that experience once you found the website through to using the product as low touch as we possibly could, that was always the key. Like how do we how do we automate this and streamline it and make it a really great experience for the customer? Great, fantastic here. And like I love this approach. And you know, because I think we 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 share some uh, you know at some stage you know similar uh, I would say uh, career. Like I, I I don't like, you know, even in when it comes to IT. For example, being in server business or selling laptop business, it was not you know, attractive to me or storage systems because these things becomes commodity after some time. And actually they are now commodity. And you know, you don't feel the, I would say, you know, this, this moment where you're trying to prove to the customer that actually you are solving a real problem. And for me, for example, if if you give me now a laptop or you give me a, to, te- to talk about, for example, a, a server or whatever, okay, I can describe it. It has this much CPU, this much RAM, you know, the disk spins at this speed. But, you know, again, like I'm talking about the commodity, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, love, I, I love talking about, you know, things that change, you know, dramatically the customer journey, you know, it saves them money. And, and I think you've, you've, you've done all this here on properly, I would say, but there must be some skills also. And I'm asking this question, you know, sometimes part of my audience are first time founders, right? So there must be some skills, you know, when it comes to, because maybe you have a brilliant idea, you're really solving a real genuine problem, but you get stuck. You know, you're not able to to grow it. You're not even able. You mentioned the SEO stuff, but nowadays, you know, there are some other tools. So, what are like? Let's say, let's call that. I don't like this word, but <laughs> it's what people know it like soft skills. Let's say things that you need really to master in order to scale the business. Another great question, um, and I think there are there are a couple of key ones that I've learned along the way. One. One is on on the financial side, um, and it's a, a tip that I share. I think it was given to me many years ago, and I remembered it. And it was it was be passionate and dispassionate in equal measure. And what I mean by that is that you need to have passion for what you're doing. I think if you're going in to start a business on your own, and, and the, the the thing that you're selling or trying to deliver doesn't really interest you very much, then that's probably not a great place to start. But equally, the dispassionate bit is important too because you may go into it because you love it, but actually you're one of very few people who love it and therefore the audience that you thought or the market you thought existed isn't as big uh, as you'd hoped it would be or you've got the product slightly wrong or the service quite slightly wrong. So my dispassionate bit is in looking at the numbers and that's the bit where you've got to sit down and 
not just convince yourself that it's all going to be all right because you love this thing, but it's actually being dispassionate on that saying, you know what, we're going to have to pivot or worst case scenario, you know what, it was just a bad idea. Let's move on. And yeah, there've been nine, nine exits, but there've been things that we've started and finished quite quickly because of the former and not the latter. So I think that's really key. Um, and I think the other one, again, you'll have heard this, but I suspect from numerous guests before, but it's always try and fill your boardroom and your meeting room and everywhere with people that are smarter than you are. And you're completely right. You know, I started life doing a bit of web design and probably found my way, my way around a Perl script back in 1999 and 2000. But right now, no, you know, this is all moved on at a pace that left me behind 15 years ago. So it's finding really strong people that can deliver deliver those solutions, uh, recognizing who they are, bringing them on board and, and getting great teams of people in place. Great advice, Kiran. Like, and I think the, what I understood from you and uh, something also I've read a lot about it is maybe this is the deep passion part you mentioned is also not to be too much into the solution in a sense like having an ego, like this is my idea, I'd have to succeed, whatever it takes. Honestly, I did these mistakes, you know, multiple times. I, I have to make this succeed and it was kind of an ego. And then, you know, with time, of course, the more you lose hair, <laughs> all your hair became, becomes wide. So you start to understand, oh no, like actually I needed to pivot, you know, and yeah. I think the I would say the underrated uh, reason why startups fail in general is because founders, they, they don't understand they, they need to pivot at some stage. Like, this is my own opinion. This is what I have seen. And they insist, no, like the market is not understanding me. You know, like people are not getting what I'm trying to say, exactly. which, is not the, which is not the case. Now, in this journey, Karen, and because again, you did it and even you, you, you had two, two uh, listings on, on NASDAQ, right? So which way you prefer to do it? Have you done it using, you know, the bootstrapping approach? So you were using your own money, family, friends, or have you done it through investors, VCs, and so on? Or it was mixed of all. And of course, I want your opinion on which approach we should take. I know that the answer it depends, but of course, with nine, you know, successful startups, I'm sure that you have some more insight than it depends. Yeah, a couple of points there. And I will just be, before I move on to those, just go back to the point you were making on, on pivoting and so on, and also understanding ego and when it gets in the way. So just, just touch on that. Only because it's really timely, I had a developer meeting uh, today with all of the team and the, the, the head of technology on that call. Um, and often I will accuse myself as well as be accused of changing direction frequently um, because it is typically in response to either pressure from potential investors that you're talking to that want your product to go in a certain direction or or seeing opportunities in the market. And, and that's one of the real great things about a new startup is that you can make those changes quite quickly. However, so what happened over the last week was our, our head of technology just came up with some really, really fantastic um, implementations for our public API. And I said, you do realize as a result of those ideas that you've just come up with, we're probably going to change the development roadmap for the next three months and move two or three things out of the way and advance this. So, you know, 
those ideas should be welcome. They should come from everybody in the team. It doesn't need to be a head of technology. It can be anybody and, and really be always listening to what they are and responding to them. Not least because you get so much buy-in from everybody if they're coming not just from the top all of the time, but everyone feels like their product idea is, is getting a listening. So, so that's really important. In terms of approaches, uh, yep, nine exits. That's between myself and my co-founder over these 30 years. So um, I've never, never before directly raised, although we're in the process of doing that now, my co-founder's done it a, a number of times. So different businesses that we've been involved in um, and we've existed together, it's, you know, cumulative nine um, or a combined nine rather. Um, I, this is an interesting one because we, this, this business so far is founder funded on the basis of the last exits we did from the telecoms business and we're just raising now. Prior to this, I don't think any of the businesses has been, um, it's not just revenue positive pretty much from day one, but actually made a profit pretty much from day one is the way that, that we've started them. And they've grown fairly slowly and, and fairly organically in the overall scheme of things based on things like SEO. So, you know, minimal spend on that in producing content 10, 15 years ago and just watch the, the organizations grow without spending huge amounts on marketing, without bringing in any external funding and then moving on and, and selling fairly quickly. Um, or fairly quickly in the, in the scheme of things being like five, five years or so, um, but not fairly quickly in terms of, you know, bringing external funding and accelerating your, your market much more rapidly. So I can't give you an opinion on whether I prefer the latter to the former. I will say that trying to raise over the last couple of years in the fintech sector, <laughs> anyone who's been doing that will tell you it's not been much fun since 2021. So it's definitely a challenging environment out there. Um, and again, quite rightly so, you know, it's a bit like the FCA piece. I'd rather someone was being super diligent about what they're investing in than just throwing money around willy-nilly. Um, so it's probably a good thing, but yeah, um, done it organically till now we've raised in the past the only other observation i'd make if it's if it's helpful too in terms of um that process for selling is be thinking about it from the very moment you start your business if if that's your intention is to sell at some point in the future and what i mean by that is that if you get really well prepared and you've got your everything in place a bit like your data room if you're raising money You've almost got your, you know, your, your similar files in Dropbox or wherever it might be preparing for the diligence that's going to happen when you sell the business. So every contract that you're signing with everybody, make sure all the paperwork's in place. And you always got one eye to that as you develop in the business. It will really help when it comes to that, that exit, that sale. You touched base, you touched base on something uh, really key here. And... I had the chance to be, not for me, but to be sitting with founders on investors' calls. And the question that they get asked, what is your exit strategy, right? So and I see a lot of times, you know, the founders, like they start to look to each other. Uh, okay, we just started, right? Yeah. So because, I, because, you know, when you go to an investor, they are need to understand, you know, What's your ambition in this business? And are you going to sell it, as you mentioned? What's your plan? Are you going to an IPO? Uh, are you going just to do, reach a certain, I don't know, like uh, maybe a target in your head? You said, okay, I want to do this amount of, of dollars, pounds, whatever. 
in a year and then I'm going to go retire, sell it to someone, I'm going to merge it. So yeah, I think it's a tricky question and I see a lot of first-time founders, they, yeah, they are passionate, back to the passion thing you mentioned, you know, they are passionate about what they're doing and actually they are pretty much doing something cool, but they don't have an answer to that question. Uh, because I uh, think, I, <laughs> right? You're absolutely right. No, you're completely right. And I think, and I think you're also right. There is no right or wrong answer to the question, but there needs to be an answer. And that's the, it's that kind of, oh, I've not even thought about that, which is the, is the thing that's probably not greeted very well by anybody who's looking to invest or so. And it's just like, you must have some idea. So even if your idea is that that might emerge and evolve and could be a number of different routes, it could be a, an, a, an acquisition by a competitor, um, it could be an IPO, it could be, but but do give it some thought and just, you know, I don't think anyone's going to hold you to the answer that you give at the time of that meeting, but I think it's good that they're looking that you've given some thought to that. Um, and, and if people are investing, then they probably are looking for you to have an exit idea at some point, or at least a strategy rather than it be a lifestyle business that they're never going to see any significant return from or any return. Right. And I think because also the landscape of startups currently is very different than it was maybe couple of decades, if I can be accurate, where, yeah, you start a company and this company really, you know, it, it can have like, yeah, it's like a hundred plus years company. Like we talk here about yes. Microsoft, we talk about Apple, we talk about, you know, the big guys. Now, you know, we see like actually these startups, they either get acquired, even when they do IPO, they don't stay there for a long time. You see them like at some stage, someone go and acquire them after some time. And, you know, it's a crowded market, Kieran, right? Do you agree with me and say it's a crowded market out there? Yeah, absolutely. And um, definitely kind of vying for attention. And in the, in the fintech space, I think, you know, that there are a lot of payment providers out there. So, so doing something different from our point of view is really important. What's the uniqueness that we bring to this space? And again, we're, we're kind of lucky that we, we've got a genuine and a genuine tech for good heritage. And I say that because a lot of these phrases do get hijacked. Um, I'll often joke that if you've not got ESG in your, in your company profile or about page on your website at the moment, then who are you? Um, so it, it's a shame that, that some of the phrases get hijacked and so on. But, but I think that's one of our genuine advantages. It is absolutely how we got started. So I think that can set, set us apart. And I think You've got to do that. When the space is crowded, how do you differentiate? These are all very obvious things that you'll read in any business book, but they're in any business book because they're important. You, you need to think about that and think about how you make yourself different. 100%. And this is why I'm a little biased by the blue ocean strategy, right? So um, I tell them if, if, you're, if you are in a crowded market, maybe you will succeed, but your chances get lower because yeah. if you don't have an uh, a real differentiator, or I mean, like, let's call it value add, right? In, in, in the marketplace, you know, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I, I know some people get upset with that, but this is the, the truth. No, it's, it's completely true. But, but equally, think about your market because often this, you know, what, what might be crowded in one, one marketplace might be not the case in another. And I think in, in the payments sector, there's room for lots of business because the scope certainly around open banking, when you think about the volume of transactions that are happening daily around the globe, is just so enormous that a very tiny share of that massive market would still turn you into a unicorn. Um, so, you know, markets are all different and, and some are much more limited in terms of the number of players in them than others. 
Um, that's not to say that you won't see a lot of consolidation. I'm sure you will, even in this space. Um, I'm sure it's going to happen. But yeah. consolidation's good too. You know, that, that can be your exit strategy for sure. 100%. 100%. Kiran, uh, like if, as we are coming almost to an end, if you want to leave the audience with some, uh, I would say, advice, word of wisdom, what do you tell someone who maybe he or she, they're just starting their journey in entrepreneurship? So what you would leave them with today? I think the advice is to, to be prepared for the journey in the sense that it, there are a lot of times when you think it's going to be really straightforward and you can't understand why people don't see the solution that's so plainly in front of your eyes, the solution to a problem that seems equally apparent. Um, Keep battling on. Uh, listen to yourself in terms of that dispassionate piece that I mentioned earlier, though, because I think that's one of the things that I have lived by, that it's okay. You know, failure isn't failure. Failure is just setting yourself up to do the next thing and learning from the experience. So so it, it, if you are looking at the numbers and they're telling you a really clear story and it's not the one you want to listen to, listen to it. You have to. Um, and then the only other thing is, is, again, it's just try and get that balance. It's not easy. Startup life is is in, in, inherently frenetic and, and fast-paced and so on. So give yourself genuine downtime, find something that takes your mind off what you're doing and, uh, and gives you a chance to rest the brain cells. I 100% agree on the last advice, you know. I, I need to give it to myself also as well <laughs> because sometimes, yeah, like uh, you get excited, a lot of things, there's, there's a lot of stress, uh, there are also a lot of uh, excitement moments, but yeah, the brain cells need some rest. That's correct. Uh, Kieran, uh, anything that I have missed, I should have asked today. I think it's been a, an incredibly comprehensive interview, at least from uh, from my point of view. I hope your listeners agree, but no, fantastic questions and, and my pleasure really to be, to be on the show. My pleasure. Where we can find more about you, Kieran? Uh, domain name's really straightforward. We started the fundraising platform at wonderful.org and it's been there ever since. Again, going back to those domain name registration days, we registered wonderful.co.uk, which is where the commercial service uh, exists back in 1998. So straight out of Nominet. Um, so yeah, wonderful.co.uk and wonderful.org are the two sites you'll find me. Great. I will make sure that they are in the show notes. Um, uh, Thank you very much, Kieran. I really also enjoyed the conversation. I learned uh, something new about open banking systems and their use cases. And, you know, especially, actually it's in, 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 a, uh, in a domain which is, you know, nice to talk about, which is, I think we didn't cover it even on the show. Like we talk about like charity, right? So this is really something um, that helps for a good uh, reason also as well. So thank you for sharing that. And I hope, you know, the audience, I'm sure they will find it useful, but I hope to inspire them also to do something for, you know, the, 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 the good willing of everyone also as well. It's not like just about being a business. So this is something really cool. And uh, I appreciate the time today, Kiran. And the way I end my episodes is just for the audience. If you are a first time visitor here, thank you for passing by. I hope you become a loyal fan. So if you are listening to this podcast, uh, podcast episode on your favorite podcasting platforms make sure you subscribe and if you are watching us on on uh, youtube so make sure also you subscribe and if you are one of the loyal audience 
thank you very much for all your emails, for all your messages that you keep sending to me. I really appreciate the feedback. Keep them coming. I And we also, if you have any like suggestion, idea for the show, also let me know. And if you're interested to be on the show as well, don't hesitate. Reach out. We can find a transit time to record together. Time zone is not an issue. As I always say, we can always find a fit. I'm kind of in the middle of, of a time zone that can suit the whole world. So don't hesitate to reach out. And thank you very much for tuning in. We'll meet again very soon. Hit that subscribe button. Share the show with your tech-savvy friends and fellow entrepreneurs. And leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Your support means the world to us.